Okay, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll just be honest with you, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't let up. Just when you thought, you know, you might get a break on a couple nice verses, he sort of puts the pedal to the metal. And so, whereas last week was a little challenging with uh, the issues of judging not and the plank and the speck, well, he's about to take it up a notch. Amen. And uh, you know what? I'm not going to... I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just going to go ahead and go with the word and be true about it and allow my job review. Let it be noted, Lord, that I'm trying to be true to your word. Amen. We're all going to have a job review. And the guy next to you isn't going to be the reviewer. Amen. That's going to be Jesus alone. So there you go. I've got to tremble on me this morning. I want to be true to the scripture. Okay, let's look at this. We're going to move today from uh, the, the, the subject of how we give and receive judgment, instruction, and correction, uh, which we covered through verse 1 through 12. And now we're, we're going we're gonna to move into a, another zone where, where Jesus is talking about discerning and, and how you listen, how you hear, and what you esteem, and how you live. What's important and what's not important. And he deals with some of the most foundational issues of our hearts. Um, because he's dealing with the, uh, the propensity that we have to be self-focused and self-preserving. And, uh, but he is, he is describing something completely opposite. And then he's going to go into uh, the issue of who you listen to. And we're going to talk about false prophets. And it just, out of the gate, I just want to mention this. The Sermon on the Mount being the treatise of the kingdom of God, being the foundational thoughts that Jesus uh, expounds upon to set up his kingdom, the, the value system and the characteristics of the kingdom. The, I, it just never dawned on me before. I mean, I've written a book along these, these lines on the Sermon on the Mount, but it just never dawned on me. What does it mean that he would put a whole discussion in the Sermon on the Mount about false prophets? That is an important subject if he's going to put it in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you can kind of do it like this. You can kind of read through the scripture and go, ah, false prophets. You know, we don't have any false prophets around here. I mean, clearly, like, you know, the guy that's preaching in the name of false God, that's a false prophet. But, you know, we don't really have any of those. But I'm about to show you that Jesus is not talking about the guy that's preaching in the name of another God. He's actually talking about those that are preaching in his name. And it's a serious issue. Uh, as I said, so serious, he would put it in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's a call to discernment. and um, But it's not a call to be this uh, critical person with a critical heart. You know, he's already dealt with... The, the self-righteousness of, of having a critical spirit in the first several verses of the chapter and getting into judgmentalism and without looking to yourself. He's already dealt with that in a pretty strong way. So the goal in his uh, conversation about the false prophets is not to make you this, you know, self-appointed. I, I always get this picture in my mind of this self-appointed sheriff 
who's going around and arresting everybody who they deem to be wrong in the kingdom. And you know the guys because they got websites and, you know, everybody else is wrong, but we're right. You know, that's not the point to be some heresy hunter. But the point is to be discerning. That's what he's calling the church to. He's calling his followership to is discernment. Because the Lord, it's amazing to me. It's kind of like if I were God, I wouldn't give people the opportunity to sort of, you know, take things too far and get into sin. I just say, you know, you can, I would only, I would create the, the, I would create the, the boundaries so that they couldn't journey off into sin. But the Lord gives us all sorts of uh, opportunity that if we take it too far, we end up into sin. I mean, uh, human sexuality is a perfect example. God created sex, but sexuality has become a mass means for perversion. But the Lord's the one that created it. He does not mind giving us enough rope that we could actually go and hang ourselves with it. Uh, because he calls us to righteousness in love and obedience in love that we would actually be constrained through the love of God and live within the boundaries that he sets up and not journey off because of love. Holiness because of love. That's what he actually calls us to. He doesn't call us to live in a prison cell and therefore we can't do sin. He actually allows there to be a wide open opportunity and calls us to constraint through love. That's God. So... uh this issue on false prophets, it's, it's really intense. It's, uh, really, uh, it, it's, uh, I pray the Lord would, uh, declare clearly through me this morning on that issue. All right. Let's look at verse 13. And, uh, the way that I see verse 13 and 14, I believe it relates to the, uh, the following verses, uh, 15 through through 23 and I believe it relates to the previous verses 1 through 12 but I see these two as a bridge between two topics it's a bridge between the two topics the first topic being the issue of correction and judgment how you give it and receive it and looking to yourself and not getting into self-righteousness and then the second issue being uh, how you hear and discernment in the message of the gospel how you hear and who you listen to so, look at verse 13. Familiar verses, much has been preached on these. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Wow. Few who find it. Uh, for a long time, I read those verses and I thought, well, those verses are a generic description of, you know, people who get saved and people who don't. So the, the, the narrow gate uh, is the salvation gate. You get saved and now you're on the narrow path and you're on the narrow, you went through the narrow gate. And that's the salvation gate. And then the, the wide gate and the broad way, that's the unsaved gate, you know, and that's where the unsaved guys are. And so he's just making, you know, for a long time I thought, oh, he's just making a distinction between the lost and the saved. But I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he, I think it does apply to that, but I don't think that's the main thing he's doing. 
what I think he's actually dealing with is the paradigm, the, the mentality that we have and, and the way that we approach how we live our lives every single day. It's more than just the salvation issue. It's what are you allowing to influence your life? What spirit of you are you of? And what is the influence that then is directing the steps of your life? 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says this. The whole world, which is the world system, lies under the sway of the evil one. The sway of the evil one. And I'm looking at those ideas about, you know, and John said, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, it's all of the enemy, it's all of the devil. And I'm looking at the influences that compel our hearts to live the way that we live day in and day out. And I'm looking at this idea of the narrow gate versus the wide gate. And I'm realizing that Jesus, as he is giving, you know, Holy Spirit inspired teaching on the law and the way to do life is actually dealing with the day in and day out choices and the path that we live our life out on every single day. What we allow to influence us in our decisions and what we go for, the dreams, how, you know, how we do our lives. He said there is a wide gate and there is a narrow gate. And as we're living our lives, walking through the gate on either a broad path or a difficult path. One will lead to life and one will lead to destruction. And the point becomes this. When you are uh, influenced by the world system, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the world system, the influences in the world. When you're influenced by that and you're compelled by that system and you're making decisions out of the, the heart that's been motivated through the world system, that is a path that's, you could call it Christianity, that's fine, you can put any label on it you want, but ultimately that is a path that is influenced by the evil one, and that is a, uh, Jesus says it's a path to destruction. And I remember when I first went into a deep study on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most uh, challenging, one of the most disconcerting uh, powerful things about the sermon was this. He said, I am giving you a new way to live. It's narrow and it's difficult. Everything else is wide and easy. The narrow and difficult leads to life. The wide and easy leads to destruction. And when that landed on me, I went, oh my goodness. How often have I painted the name of Jesus on my, the things that influence my life, yet 
realize that I'm actually operating in sync with the sway of this present evil world. The world has passed away and the lust thereof. And here's the thing. We, at times, we have confused the issues so much that in the church, all the time, we will see uh, things that are actually totally the sway and the influence of the enemy. In other words, the lust of the eyes. Does it look good? Is it something you want? The lust of the flesh. You know, does it feel good? The pride of life. Is it going to make you look good? And all of a sudden, these influences, they begin to cross. And what I find is there is a collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the challenge is the mixture actually resides in the church. And when I read those verses and I go, whoa, there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. There is an easy way, a broad way, and a difficult way. It demands me to take inventory and see which way I'm on and which gate I've entered by. The truth is, the scripture promises us, Acts chapter 14 Verse 22, the disciples understood that through many trials and tribulations, we would enter the kingdom of God. There, there is a challenging reality to living in the kingdom. And they understood it's not going to be easy. It's not going to make us feel good all the time. I've been looking At the prophet Jeremiah and looking at his life and realizing the Lord called this man from before he was born, anointed him as a prophet to the nations. He declares the word of the Lord and he doesn't have any converts. Spends a large percentage of his time in jail, has multiple death threats and and attempts on his life. And at the end of his life, everything he prophesied comes to pass, but nobody listens to him. And he's walking around the ruins of the city of Jerusalem looking at the product of what he's prophesied. And I'm looking at that man's life and I'm saying, he would be an abject failure in America in 2011. They would reject that ministry as a complete failure. Number one, because his message wasn't happy enough. Didn't make people feel good enough. And number two, because he didn't have large masses following him. What was the same with Jesus? Jesus had large crowds when things were going well. And small crowds when the message got hot. It's interesting how that works. And and so I'm looking at this narrow gate and the difficult way. and And I have to look at my own life and take inventory. And I go, okay... What influence is influencing me in my decisions? What influence is is moving my heart and motivating me? Especially, hello, especially in the way that I spend my time and I spend my money. 
Because there is a, such a locator in those two areas. Especially in those two areas. So, just to break it down again, there is a broad way that leads humanity to destruction through a wide gate. The wide gate equals easy entry. It's not difficult. It's the idea that there's many paths. Many paths. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have an opportunity to, to pray in a public environment. And I happen to know that uh, this is coming up. And I happen to know that there are people that actually believe in other gods. And I've already just had to just do it in my mind. That if they say, hey, could you mind just not praying in Jesus' name? That I'll just go, no, I can't. I have to step, because what they would be inviting me to do is pray to the God over all of the religions, and that guy is the devil. (laughs) He's not over Christianity, but he's over everything else. I'm not about to pray that prayer. If you want me to pray, I'm praying to the one true God and his only son, Jesus Christ, and that's it. We're not going into some, you know, in the name of... World peace or ecumenicalism, just kind of gloss it over and yeah, the God of the, you know, the Buddhists and the Muslims and whoever is the God of Christianity. That is not real. That's a falsehood. The wide gate says there's many ways, many options. Easy believism. Cause that's, that's what the wide gate says. It's many paths. It's a wide entryway. And the wide gate has a broad way, which which means it's easy to traverse. I've always thought it was strange and interesting that one of the key streets in our nation that influences culture is called Broadway. It's weird. I mean, it's a little strange, actually. Because Broadway actually leads to destruction. Want to be a star. Want to be seen by the masses. Want to be accepted. The broad way, he said, it leads to destruction. And that is, that's that easy believism. Many options. Sort of just do your life. Seek the American dream. Add Jesus on it. And you're good. You know, we see this. Young people all the time, they make excuses. And old people. My wife, one time, she told me, she goes, you shouldn't always... Just harp on the young people for the music they listen to because the old people listen to the same music. I went, okay. They're, they're listening to that bad music because their parents are listening to it too. I went, oh, well, I didn't know that. So parents and young people, they, they always make excuses for the music they listen to because they go, well, I know it's got a bad message in it. But man, when they won that Grammy Award, they said, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look, if the guy is singing about fornication... And promoting, you know, homosexual lifestyles and and violence and all this stuff through the music. And he goes, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a false thing. That's not real. Jesus is clear. There is a broad way that has many options. Easy believism. We sort of just add Jesus and Christianity on to, to whatever. And we call that saved. That's not real, beloved. It's not real. What I mean is it's not real Christianity. And so the real version is a version that has a narrow gate. Jesus Christ is the only way. And it has a difficult path, which means this, that there are few options involved. 
There are few options involved. That all the time you have to say no to certain things because you're saying yes to a heart that desires holiness motivated by love. You can't just sort of throw in the, the carnal pursuit or throw in the, the you know, ungodly thing and say, well, there's grace. Now, that's not real. That's called compromise. That's called compromise. And the point of this verse isn't to now get us all under some legalistic bondage where we just go, well, it's just narrow. It's just so narrow. Get all the makeup off and, you know, make sure you grow your hair out, ladies, and only dresses and get a mean look because you couldn't be happy if you're focused. That's not the point. But the point is that a heart that desires the real thing, Jesus, is going to find itself having to say yes to God and no to the influence of the world. That, that The whole world is lying under the sway of the evil one. And you're going to be finding yourself doing things and saying things that are not popular. You know, the, the, the water cooler conversations in the office are going to feel very uncomfortable at times. And then there's this other thing that we've got to deal with that at times, even others that identify themselves as believers, but have embraced the flow, the sway of the spirit of the age. You're going to actually not be able to flow with those influences and actually have to say, no, I'm not into that movie. I'm not into that pursuit. I'm not into that. It's a narrow way. They go, oh, well, you're just holier than thou. You're just so religious. You go, actually, I don't, I'm not trying to be religious. I want to be in love and I don't want anything to get in the way. Definitely not some stupid movie or some other pursuit or some other influence. There's a, there's a version of Christianity that we have embraced in, in the West and we just got to be real about it. It doesn't look anything like apostolic Christianity that's historical from the scripture, nor does it look like the version of Christianity that they have to live in other parts of the world where they don't have the options. And what I found is that in the West, we have so many options, we just sort of embrace little pieces of the culture and parts of the influence, and we just sort of broaden it out and just say, well, you know, there's grace, and, you know, it's just, you know... This is how I'm going to live. And I, you know, you just got to be, don't be religious, brother. You know, and, and there is a, there's a false thing about that, beloved. There's a narrow path, a difficult, narrow way. That's called living for Jesus. You can't, you don't have the options everybody else has. You don't have the options that the world has. And I'm, I'm boggle. It, it grieves me and I'm in pain for, for who we are as a people. And I boggle at the Christianity, the version of Christianity that's like, I go to church on Sunday and I just live any way I want, Monday through Saturday, and it's okay. That's counterfeit. It's counterfeit. And there are many, you know, pastors and leaders historically that have, they've, they've preached messages and real sharp thoughts on this concept of counterfeit conversion. Where it looks like Christ, it's got the label of Christ, but it is not 
actually Christ because it's filled with the world system. And that's, that is a real idea. Jesus, he taught parables along those lines. The wheat and the tares is a perfect example. He lets the wheat and the tares grow up together and then separates it out at the end of the age. I have a friend, he went on a, a trip to Israel and he was there with an evangelist and and the uh, evangelist, he was leading a, a group of, you know, 50 people or something on this tour of, of Israel. And the evangelist said, uh, do you know the difference between Middle Eastern wheat and Middle Eastern tares? And my friend said, well, no, I actually don't. And he had two sprigs in his hand. He said, do these look the same to you? And my friend said, yeah. They look exactly the same. He goes, yeah, it's because you don't have a trained eye. He said, this one is wheat and this one is tares. The tares, you can only have a certain amount of those in a harvest because they will poison an entire harvest. If it's over like 8% weeds or tares in a harvest, they have to throw the whole harvest out. They're poisonous. They're debilitating. They're actually harmful to eat. And he said, only a trained eye knows the difference between the wheat and the tares. The Lord is the one who knows the difference. And beloved, I'm telling you, there needs to be a healthy tremble in our heart over these issues. And there needs to not be this sloppy, easy grace. Well, you know, brother, there's grace for everybody. You know, don't judge me and all that. No, no, there is a there is a narrow gate in a difficult way. It's called living for Jesus. You know what? It says many will go through the wide gate on the broad way to destruction. Don't try to make that something else. Don't try to make that to, you know, they're on the they went on the broad way and, you know, their business failed. No, that's I mean, it might bring a failure to your business, but it may not. It might actually the broad way might really bring a lot of money to your business. But it will bring destruction to your life. Because the Broadway is the way to eternity in hell. And the narrow way, the narrow gate and the narrow difficult way is the way that Jesus prescribed. It's the value system of the kingdom. Living by the value system of the kingdom. And man, I'm going to tell you what, when you're staring at these verses here, seven, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, you go, oh my gosh, it's a narrow gate. Oh my gosh, it's a difficult way. Oh my goodness, he's talking about the values of the kingdom. And then you recognize... Whoa, my value system. It doesn't look like the values of the kingdom. It's cause for us to repent and turn. This is a critical, critical component of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, these two verses bridge the conversation of judgment and instruction and correction with this next conversation that I want to go into now. And this issue of false prophets. Now let's look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now that we've got the banner of the narrow gate and the difficult way. We've got that in mind. Consider these verses underneath that banner. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, in most Bibles, there's a heading in between verse 20 and 21. And most of the time you hear it taught, those thoughts are separated. For our purposes here, as we're going line by line and in the context, let's not separate them. Let's read them together. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay. The first point I'll make is the conversation between that Jesus gives us in 21 through 23 goes with verse 15 through 20. The many and the everyone who says to me and, and that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall the kingdom. That those verses specifically are identifying the group he just talked about, the false prophets. Notice the very first thing he says. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall I the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? So 21 through 23, attach it to 15 through 20. And this, this conversation about the false prophets, don't separate them out. The concepts work, how, you know, they work in a broad manner of applications, but those verses go together. 15 through 23, they go together. Now, let's think about this, this issue of false prophets. I have a real tremble in my heart over this, beloved. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, that word beware is, it's a discerning idea. It's take note. Be on the alert. It's not be afraid. So many in the kingdom, they are so afraid that they're going to be deceived. They have no confidence that they're going to be led by the great shepherd. Listen, if if your confidence is in your ability to follow well, you need to change your confidence. Here's, Here's the point. You and I were sheep. He did, he made this He made this comparison on purpose because sheep are horrible followers. A sheep will eat grass right up to the edge of a cliff and just keep going and walk right off the cliff. Sheep need shepherds or they will destroy themselves. You're a sheep, I'm a sheep. We're terrible followers. He is the really good shepherd. 
We trust his leadership. He goes, my sheep, they know my voice. And the voice of another, they won't follow. He goes, now, beware, take note of false prophets. The Greek words are pseudo-prophetes. Pseudo, you know, it means one that's like a prophet, but he's not. One that's similar to, but it's not real. It's not authentic. It's an inauthentic prophet. He goes, make a distinction. He goes, be on the alert. Don't be all freaked out. Trust my leadership, but be aware. And I think it's, again, I just want to highlight, I want to underline that. The idea that we put this in the Sermon on the Mount tells me there's more false prophets out there than we think. There really are. Now, is the goal for me to inspire you to start an internet ministry calling out all the false prophets? No. In fact, don't do that. And in fact, if you happen to be listening to me and you have one of those, take that website down. And go back and read verse 1 through 12 a thousand times. Because he doesn't give us verse 1 through 12 on the plank and the speck to now encourage us to get into a what they call a discernment ministry where all you're doing is calling out everybody you think is not godly. That, that style of ministry, it, it's, it, it's one that needs correction. That ministry needs correction. But he is giving a broad call to all those that are subjects of the kingdom... To be discerning, to be aware, to be on the alert, that there are those who will appear to be sheep. They will appear to be just like you and I, but he says instead they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They look similar to us, but they are not of the kingdom. Now that's interesting because they say all the right things. They look the part. They seem to have the right message. Well, what's even more disconcerting is when you look down there at verse 21 and 22, and I mean, yeah, 21, 22, and 23, and he describes the activity of these wolves in sheep's clothing. He said, they will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, at the great review, they will say to me, didn't we prophesy in your name. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? And do many wonders in your name? He'll say, depart, because I never knew you. This, This, see, there's... There's different styles of false prophets that the scripture identifies. In in Deuteronomy 13, we get from from the Lord that if there's a a prophet who does signs and wonders and points to another God, he goes, that's a false prophet. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 through 3. They do signs and wonders, but they point to another God. He goes, totally a false prophet. Well, Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, he says... Ones that uh, prophesy in my name and then it doesn't come to pass. He goes, don't even fear that guy. That's actually what it says in verse 22. Don't don't even regard it. It's just obviously not, not real. He goes, or if they prophesy to you in the name of another God. 
and it doesn't come to pass. He goes, you know, it's, it's not real, obviously. Jesus is actually giving us another category of false prophets. These are ones that actually prophesy in the name of Jesus. It's a real prophetic word. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? In other words, there's actually real people on the other side of that person's ministry who really got delivered. Whew. Didn't we do many wonders in your name? He's giving us a whole other category. Guys that are actually doing signs and wonders, deliverance and prophecy in Jesus' name. It's actually not, you know, in someone else's name. It's not the false God's name. It's actually in Jesus' name. But Jesus makes a distinction about these. And he says, they are wolves in sheep's clothing he goes, they look like sheep on the outside, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And beloved, that is a loaded statement. Ravenous wolves. Inwardly, there's an issue. Inwardly, their hearts aren't mine. Inwardly, they have a different desire. And focus and value system than I do. That word ravenous. It could also be translated rapacious. There are two definitions. How this word is used. The first word is. Or the first definition for the word is. Aggressively greedy. Or swindlers. Aggressively greedy. Or swindlers. It's specifically talking about those who take advantage of people for money. They utilize the anointing that they've found in Christ to minister with, you know, signs and wonders, and their heart motivation is money. They want to swindle the people. Out of money because they are greedy for their own gain. <laughs> In the West, we flock to miracle signs and wonders, oftentimes without any consideration of the inner life of the individual ministry. In fact, we don't really care if the lifestyle doesn't match up with the Bible as long as there's cool stuff happening. Power, signs, and wonders, and, and miracles. You and I both understand this. We understand. We know. There are many names. And my goal isn't to call out names. But there are many names. They've gone through you know, horrifying uh, you know, things in their personal life. And don't even stop, don't even blink and will stay in ministry. And there will still be, you know, powerful things happening, manifestations happening in their ministry. And the church in the West loves it. I want to say it. Jesus was clear. He thought it was important enough to put in the Sermon on the Mount. That if there is a 
powerful signs and wonders ministry. And the heart is not in accordance. It's going to actually, he's going to actually make it clear in a minute that it has to be in accordance with the value system of the kingdom. The heart isn't, if it's not in accordance with the value system of the kingdom, Jesus is going to have a day of reckoning and call that ministry false. Am I reading this as it's written? We love to make kings and stars out of people. We love to camp out around anybody who's got a little spark on them. We love to call all the sparks bonfires. We do. We hype it up. Because we love anybody who's moving in what we would identify as kingdom dynamics. We don't even care if their family life is a shambles. They divorce their wife. They're on their third one. We don't care about, we just go to the conference, we just go to the meeting, throw our money in the bucket, try to get our blessing. Beloved, it's false. It's false. There needs to be a greater level of caution and discernment when we see a ministry that has things that are... uh, in sin or issues that are that are outside the bounds of, of holiness, or they're obviously opulent and greedy for money. There needs to be a different level of discernment that we approach that with. And there might be people running around going, I went to the meeting and I got delivered. I went to the meeting and I got a prophetic word and it came to pass. I went to the meeting and there were signs and wonders at the meeting. I believe that. I believe that there are ministries that do signs and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they get to their review, the Lord will say, depart, I never knew you. Your inner issues were all about you. It wasn't about me. It wasn't love for the people. It was about you being greedy for gain. You used the anointing I placed on your life for your own opulence and lusts and not for the glory of my name. So that's the first way that this word ravenous is defined. The second way, ravenous or rapacious, it literally means an animal that feeds on other animals in order for it to live. Because in their hearts, all they want to do is feed on the sheep for their own self-preservation. For their own benefit. That's why the Lord says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on the knowledge of God. Because he's rebuking, in Jeremiah, he's rebuking the shepherds who have proclaimed lies for their own benefit. The prophets and the priests who have spoken Lies, he says, lies in the name of the Lord for their own greed. Let me give you a few verses. Jeremiah 5.13. I'm just going to just give you a few, uh, just the process of what happens. These prophets, he says, 5.13, he says, the prophets will be proved to be full of wind. 
They're just prophesying a bunch of wind. See, in Jeremiah's day, the, the, the word of the Lord was, judgment is coming, coming, we've got to get right with God. Crisis is coming, we've got to get right with God. And there was a whole team of prophets that were saying, Jeremiah, you're a liar. You don't have the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is blessing is coming. Jeremiah says, by the word of the Lord, they will be proved to be full of wind. Look at verse 30, chapter 5, it's going to come up on your screen. Something horrible and something shocking is going on in the land of Judah. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests exercise power by their own authority. And my people love to have it this way. But they will not be able to help you when the time of judgment comes. And then Jeremiah 6 verse 13. He talks about how they're going to be found out and how judgment's coming. And he says, that is because from the least important to the most important of them, all of them are greedy for dishonest gain. Prophets and priests alike, all of them practice deceit. Beloved, that is such a sobering word. This is the style of false prophet that Jesus was identifying, whose hearts are set on, on their own lust, their own greed, They're prophesying in the name of the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, they're prophesying in the name of the Lord lies to get the people's approval. To draw a crowd. And so Jesus identifies that as a key and significant issue for the followers of his kingdom. Unbelievable. I had a friend years ago, he goes, you know, I've just been looking at a few verses. He goes, man, the Lord really talked about false prophets a lot. But he goes, we never talk about them. He goes, it seems like if the Lord is pointing out false prophets and this is for our benefit, he goes, somebody around here has got to be a false prophet. He goes, I think we need to like wake up. We need to, beloved. We need to look at this thing and see. And Jesus is not saying that, you know, if a guy takes up an offering, he's a false prophet. Hello? I mean, we have all sorts of verses. It says, you know, the, the worker is worthy of his wage. You know, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. But there are so many times that the, the minister will manipulate and utilize his, his authority as one who's you know, gifted and maybe a powerful uh, preacher and one who has an anointing from the Lord and will manipulate the people to give big money to them. That's a problem. That's a problem. And we need to be discerning about that. So look at this, Matthew 7, verse 16. Let's, let's have this conversation now. Because for a long time, and still, you'll, you'll see people use the fruit argument. They go, well, no, clearly he's a godly guy. Look at all the fruit. Look at all the souls. Look at all the healings. Look at all the powerful things that God's doing. 
Look at this. Verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, you will know them. It's obvious in the context, because now he's about to talk about those that prophesy in his name and do wonders, that in this context, Jesus isn't talking about signs and wonders and and power encounters and prophecy and all the things that we would identify as fruit of a powerful ministry. What he's identifying as fruit is a lifestyle that accords with the value system of the kingdom. A heart that loves people. A heart that serves and gives and loves meekness. A heart that gives itself away for the blessing and benefit of others. A heart that is obviously on the narrow path. A heart that's living by the values that he's already laid out. In a minute he's going to say, Therefore, whoever builds his house on the rock, and whoever builds his house on the sand... He's talking about those that aren't living by the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount and those who are. He goes, those who are, they're like those who build their house on the rock. Those who are not, they're like those who build their house on the sand. But the key is the therefore. Those verses, which we'll touch next time, are specifically relating to this conversation of who's got the fruit. He's identifying the good fruit as living by the value system of the kingdom, not by what we would identify as ministry success. Look, I'm all for successful ministry. I want to see thousands and thousands and thousands swept into the kingdom of God. I want to see Jesus glorified. I want to see thousands upon thousands of healings, deliverances, prophecy, signs and wonders. I mean, I want to see millions of souls enter the kingdom. But he is identifying that the issue and what he calls true and what he calls false has to do with what's going on in the heart. Not in what anything we see publicly. I'm not using these verses to, to slam big ministry or to validate small ministry. I don't think that's the point either. I think the issue is this. He's saying you've got to be aware that in the kingdom, many will come with the same message and they'll actually be able to move in power, signs and wonders and their hearts will be not for me. And he goes, I'm going to tell them I never knew you. Now, people stumble over that. What does that mean? He never knew them. Oh, what's the theology of that? How does that work? He never knew them. I've read a bunch of commentators on that phrase. How could he never have known them if he was, they were doing signs and wonders in his name? How did that work? And I like what I heard, what I read Augustine said on it, actually. Augustine said this. When Jesus said, he never knew you, I never knew you, what he's, what he's really saying is, you never knew me. You never knew my heart. You never knew my values. You never lived by my standards. It was always about you and not about me. Beloved, I look at this and I tell you, 
I have a tremble in my heart. I, I want to proclaim something. I, I can't get away with it. I can't get away from it. There is a collision coming. The value system of the kingdom of God and the value system of Western Christianity, there is a mass collision coming. This value system is going to collide with the value system that we've embraced, painted Jesus' name on, and called Christianity. I'm telling you what, I'm just want to, my goal isn't to point people, I'm, that's not the goal at all. I'm, I'm feeling like, man, we're all in this thing. We've all, you know, drinking of, drunk of this sway of the world system. And man, the Lord is going to have his way. He is a king who is coming and his kingdom will be established. And he's calling people to embrace the values of his kingdom now. And this idea of, you know, the, the prophetic voice or the, the healing evangelist that's soaking people for money, that will be judged. Doesn't mean that huge ministry is bad. That's not the point. The point is the heart has got to accord with the values of the kingdom or Jesus calls it false. And he's calling the church, be aware. Be aware. John said there's many that went out from us, but they were not of us. He's just echoing Jesus' thoughts here in the Sermon on the Mount. So I offer these thoughts to you with a tremble and looking to my own heart. I'm just saying, Lord, I don't ever want to be one that moves in, oh my God, moves in the powerful things of the kingdom. But there's a conversation awaiting at a later date where he goes, I didn't know you, son. Oh. The reward isn't the power. The reward is him. He's the reward. It's him. To live for the pleasures of him and him alone. I look at Jeremiah and I go, oh my gosh. His whole life turned out to be simply this. Whatever you're feeling, Lord, I'm available for you. I'm available for you. Whether, you, whether you're rejoicing or whether you're mourning. Whether, whether you're releasing power encounters or whether your soul is grieving over sin and judgment is what you've, you've uh, numbered the people for. I want to be on his side. Beloved, we've got, the bride has got to decide she wants to be on his side. Regardless of how it makes, makes us feel. I'm going to tell you something. There's times where being on God's side isn't going to make you feel good. It's not even going to make you feel good in the church. Come on. We have a palette for happy, happy, joy, joy messages. And, and we have to leave out half the Bible to only preach those kind of words. There is a narrow gate. There's a difficult way. It's called Christianity. It's called the value system, the culture, the kingdom of God. We, oh, as subjects of the kingdom, we have got to allow Holy Spirit to deal ruthlessly with our hearts over these issues that do not accord with the values of the kingdom. 
and call us into abandonment and love for His desire, His whim, His praise, His pleasure. What do you want? Whatever you want. That's what I want, Lord. Whatever you want. Self-preserving, self-preference, self-focus, self-ambition. Listen, there's one Lord. It's Jesus. It's not us. It's Him. It's His way. Not ours. Conformed to the image of Christ. Filled with the knowledge of His will. Praying according to His will. And we have whatsoever we pray. It's His will, His way. Not our preference, beloved. Amen. It's disruptive, isn't it? It's just disruptive. Let's just stand. I love Him. I want to be filled with joy in His presence. And I want to deal with the variance, the contradiction that exists in my heart to be wholly His, solely His. Come Holy Spirit.